0: Hello, I'm Howard and welcome to the 9320 podcast and a special edition as I'm delighted to welcome to the show an ex-Manchester City player, the one and only Nedum Anua. (laughs) Howard, the one and only. That sounds so good. Thank you very much. (laughs) How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very good. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Uh, We're recording this on Thursday. Uh, I'm sure it will go out soon after. But I say that because uh, yeah, the day day after the the Wolves match, uh, I'm feeling okay. Yeah, it's reasons to be cheerful, you could say. Reasons to be cheerful. Indeed, yeah. Especially after the previous Wednesday. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, what a difference a week can make,
0: eh? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Uh, before we talk about... Uh, yeah, you want, you've got uh, an autobiography out next week. Uh, 17th mm-hmm. of
1: May, is that right? That is correct, yeah. That and is before, correct. Put it in but, your diaries, yeah.
0: Yeah. Before we talk about that, just quickly, can we talk about City? uh, uh what have you made of the last few weeks? Uh, I know you've been on, was it the Guardian podcast talking about yeah. Pep getting... Uh, yeah. It was quite inevitable after the Champions League, which was obviously a kick in the, the, the guts to uh, to go out like that, but it was inevitable in the way Pep would get the blame for that. City responded in style, real style in the league uh, afterwards. Uh, how's it felt to you that <laughs> in the last couple of weeks? I think Pep's
1: got too much of the blame for the Champions League exit? Yeah, I think he has, to be honest. And, you know, so I was watching, I watched the semi-final uh, and I was actually doing the work for the Matchday Live for City. And as the game was finished, you know, you've got that feeling of just being gutted. Like Mm. I've been gutted twice in the last like 18 months and both times have been related to the Champions League whilst working for Matchday Live for City. But when this semi-final was over, I was also gutted because all the people who you know don't like Man City are going to say all the most obvious things possible. And I knew as somebody who works in media who had a ton of stuff lined up for the next day was going to have to be putting on my shield of like just calm down, if you know what I mean, because some people love to just dunk all over them. And, you know, you can look back at that game and I think City didn't play that well overall. And I think that's the bigger talking point for me because for Pet- he put the right team out. Yeah. And you- and even with the substitutions, they felt they felt like they were right because that's what led to the first goal. Because right, it was a bit nice bit played by Zinchenko. who then played it to Gundu and he then played in Bernardo. And then before you know it, Maris has scored. So like, well, we'll check that off, check that off. And then some of those people who were very critical of Pep and saying like, you've got to keep KDB on the field. KDB was having one of his worst games of the season. Mm-hmm. So what then happens to all the people who said in games gone by, why is he not making substitutions? Yeah. You know, like what, you can't, they want it both ways and oh, the subs were wrong. But then Madrid took off Tony Cruz Luka Modric and Casemiro but are those the right subs you know it's just it's frustrating and like I don't I don't go all in pro city but sometimes I sound incredibly pro city because I'm talking with somebody who's anti-city but for some of those people they're perfectly entitled to their own opinion but I just present like a good argument that makes sense from every angle and then we can actually have a conversation so yeah it's been a shame that they lost that game and some people absolutely loved it and for City, I'm sure it, it, for those players, it hurt. You know, you're gonna have to sit on that one till August yeah. next year. But the fact is, you know, they then come back in the Premier League and score ten goals in two games. Like this is this yeah. is who City are. I'm not trying to destroy your media career as it starts, but do you feel? Is it do you
0: feel frustrated in, in the media that it is? I mean, the game finishes and you already know in a yeah. way, don't you? The reaction you're gonna get. It's, it's so yeah. hard to actually have. I mean, I I'd, I'd be guilty of real pettiness and juvenile baby. Yeah. football Yeah, football fans are tribal but the discourse just, the discourse seems harder than ever to have just a sensible discussion about yeah
1: city. yeah and you can't and annoyingly like any point which i was going to make on the thursday after the loss would sound like well you've got no standing because you're just a city fan you're trying to justify it and just bail out like mm. just trying to be a proper apologist for the club but i'm just trying to talk about football That city lost to real madrid in the semi-finals of the Champions League context, that's City's third semi-final in the club's history. That's Real Madrid trying to win their 14th Champions or um, European Cup title. Yeah. You know, there's, these things are talking points. These are conversations like Real Madrid having a banner up before the game, saying another magical night for the kings of Europe. That's before the game. The banner was up before the game <laughs> it's because you know what I mean. But it, it can be a bit frustrating, and ultimately, like there's, some, there's tons of good people out there who understand football and they enjoy watching City play how they play and they understand the difference between City, Liverpool, Chelsea and the like, and you can find the positives with each. But then there are other people who, for example, have a real significant issue with City's ownership. And that's fine. You can have that issue. But then all your other issues that you then put forward, they all stem from the original one, but you're not mentioning the original one when you've criticized the other bits. Uh, somebody showed me something recently where a guy said last year, like if City win a quadruple, it's the worst thing in the world for football. And then this year, they put a an article saying we sh- all neutral should be hoping that Liverpool win this because they're, they're fantastic and Klopp's brilliant. Yeah, and I'm, that I'm thinking Luke Edwards at the Telegraph. Yeah, and it. I'm I'm thinking to myself like what, what like I read the full article and he's got an issue with sports washing whatever. But I, one thing that I have to take on, what well, I have to mention, like that's their opinion. They don't like that. That's fine. But you disregard the perspective of the people who are supporting their football club and have done for the majority of their lives. And every time you say something negative about the club, you're saying something negative about those fans as well. They're almost trying to guilt trip you into thinking we should all revolt and say that we all hate City now. Like the life of a City fan has been great over the last few years because City win most of the time. You see some of the best football you've ever seen in your lifetime, it's in your city. And you know, the shirt is still the same color but why are you then being criticised for something which you had no say over whatsoever? So, yeah, there's a there's a lot to it. But you can see, as was the case, sorry, I've, I've gone I've gone left field here so much. As was the case <laughs> with when Pep did that little jibe about how everybody supports Liverpool. Like somebody who's neutral understand, he's just winding people up. but Yet yeah. still, all the people who don't like City, oh, he's so arrogant. I'm sick of this. What does he think he's doing? What's the point? Getting really angry about it and outraged. Like, and then other people like, oh, Pep, you know, that's so funny, but it's probably true. And the irony is there's a hint of truth in it because otherwise you wouldn't have said it. But then in the same breath, does it really matter? And it doesn't really move the needle. And you can almost expect what the headline is going to be based on the person mm-hmm. and their history beforehand. And we've seen that. And even going into next season with Haaland, if he scores 50 goals, they'd be like, well, he should have scored 51 yeah. You know, if he's injured, well, you see, why would you sign him? Because he's been injured before. If they win the Champions League, he said, "Well, they should have won more Champions Leagues." You know, these are negative stories that will come from some of those people, and it'll be like, "Is it fair that City are able to buy Haaland even though all oh, lots of other clubs are trying to buy Holland?" And even like the people who were in love with Real Madrid last week, Real Madrid is still trying to form a super league. Has that conversation just been swept <laughs> to the side? This is Real Madrid who bought Galacticos. Oh, that was a fantastic era, though. Like no one else was buying Galacticos. That wasn't a thing. So again, I'm a context guy and I will argue, yeah. I'll just debate whatever, but just bring the facts to a debate and we can have an actual conversation, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And there were very few facts
0: brought to debate after Harland signed to be honest, Yeah,
1: exactly. Look,
0: if I was Pep, I'd be pretty arrogant, to be honest. So, yeah, <laughs> even if he was thing, arrogant. That's uh, the
1: thing, you're not going to, at this point now, based on how long he's been in the league for, and the same with Klopp and all those other managers, like, you're not going to be making new friends nor new enemies. Yes. People have made their minds up about you, and whatever you say or whatever you do, it's either, like, vindicating the fact that you believe that they're bad or that you think that they're good. And that's just what it is. So what's Can say something Can say nothing But nothing changes Yeah Well people are already annoyed at me Because I've
0: brought up The, uh, the Champions League final again So let's just talk Carlo for a couple of minutes Before yeah, we uh, Look at yeah. your book How excited are you that, that, Is this the biggest Signing Of City's history In a way in, yeah. The
1: competition
0: the, Yeah He's standing I think so. in the game
1: yeah, I think so. Because that's the thing, it is the standing in the game. Like even to talk about the City team now, they are incredible. But the vast majority of players that have come to City, they haven't had the standing in the game, but now they have the standing in yeah. the game because of how well they've done and how they've developed as players and developed as a team. But in Haaland, like, this is one of the most talked about players over the last two, three years. You remember... Times when someone said, oh, Messi's going to be on a free contract, Ronaldo's going to be on a free or something like that. Or Sorry, Mbappe's going to be on a free transfer, all this stuff. like This isn't normal. And when you see some of those players, especially for the age that they're at with Mbappe and with, um, with Haaland, to have your team be part of the conversation to bring them in from a timing standpoint and stuff like that is truly very, very significant. This is a guy and probably one of the few guys who could have basically played anywhere on planet Earth. Yeah. You know, that's the that's how exciting he is. And City have presented a project which he wants to be a part of on his dream of say being a ballon d'or, being one of the most significant players in the world. And you see it, you know, it makes sense. You get it. If you take away like the blue hatred that within that is within some people's souls, like it's it's a good move. It's like a really good move. Especially when you look at they say the game yesterday, Kevin De Bruyne scores four and could have had about three, four assists as well. You've got assists potentially from everywhere. Like, what a fit. You know, there seems like there was a gap that was available since Sergio left. Like it what a fit. You know, English speaking isn't going to be a problem. You look at the size of him, his touch, his finish, and all that. Like, what a fit. So I think it is a very, very significant sign in for City and the fact they managed to get it over the line. You know, that's brilliant recruitment by them. But in some ways, like, I, I'm not surprised because I think they've historically done this a lot anyway. Do you think this is a pointer that Pep is going to renew? know um, they've been sending out, I think, uh, PR that it won't be discussed until next season. Yeah. But. yeah, I think that's just a case of just sealing the deal if they can win the Premier League. And then, you know, they'll probably have yeah. more official discussions. But, you know, this this team now, like, it's let's be clear, this is Pep's mad city for the way they play, you know, the way the players play within it the mentalities of some of the players, like the players were very, very good. And I think he's made them great. Uh, well, it's helped make them great alongside the coaching staff and their teammates as well. So, you know, you want, it feels too early for this pep era to come to an end. So for me, yeah, yeah I hope he, I hope he signs on because, you know, you we can say the champions league is the unfinished business, but I think there's unfinished business again because they can actually go to another level. And that's the truly incredible thing about this whole setup. Cause it seems like year in year on year, they're getting better and better. Yeah. Uh, one final left-field question. Would you have taken Paul Pogba at City? Would I have taken him? If he yeah. wanted to come. If he wanted to come for the quality that he has, yeah. But the downside is some of the sort of like emotional baggage that comes where some people, like, I'll be very, very clear with you about this. And this is a bit of insight. You know who the villains are within football because though that information will leak. You'll hear players speaking ill of someone. And in Paul Pogba and other players, you never hear it. You never, never hear it. Mm. So he's a good person who's getting criticised heavily because somebody or some people don't like certain things that he does. But in terms of all-round quality, like ask yourself the question, if you say he wasn't playing for United, could Paul Pogba as a player develop and fit into Man City side? And I'd say yes, but the downside is when you've got certain people in the, me- in the media who vilify him almost every single time his name is mentioned, then you're always gonna like. I've, underst- I've I understand now the power of a platform, the power of media, and say someone like Gary Neville, for example, if he doesn't like something, every time he's on Sky because he's got the biggest platform, like that's his soapbox to talk to speak ill yeah. of a situation or something like that. And before you know it, you're drinking the Kool Aid yourself. Yeah, and, and it's all
0: clipped into into two minutes. Yeah, seconds, so it's got exactly. Got a million views on Twitter, but so. it but
1: it just rolls, it rolls, it rolls, it rolls. You know what I mean? Like the time I've watched when I watch games, like. I want City to win, but I just want to watch the game of football. And if City don't win, I'll be able to say why. And it won't be just because Cancelo didn't play well. I'll be like, the left winger for Team X did well because they did this. So I'm watching the game in totality. But for some people, when you have an agenda against somebody or some team, all you notice are the negatives and that's all you want to talk about. And I think with Pogba, that's what has happened with a lot of people. And now, like, they question desire, question his character. Why is he not signed the new deal yet still other people are doing the same sort of thing around the world? Like, does he want to be there? So on and so forth. And I think some of that's unfair. And if he was to come over to City, some of that baggage, like I'd worry more for his own safety, even. So he can't make it as a footballing decision just because of some of the noise that's around him, which would just make it somewhat of a nightmare. And he would never really be afforded the opportunity to be great. So I would have accepted him, but, you know, there's no, I would have happily brought him over because he's so good. It's a World Cup winner. But the reality is, like, there's no real avenue where you can think that Paul Pogba coming to City would be a great thing in this moment, in this climate, mm-hmm. when there's so many people speaking ill of him. Do you think, uh, for different reasons
0: and probably a lower level, do you think Grealish is getting some of that? Jack Grealish is getting some of that. Yeah, treatment. I say it's yeah. not. That's not directly. Yeah. Uh, applicable to the Pogba situation but just some parallels there in how he's been treated
1: or yeah for for sure like I think um within football like some people more people love an underdog than they do a favourite they mm. really do so Jack Griesch Aston Villa makes more sense in people's minds because he's like taking it to the big four and he's got this style of playing you know he's the most important player Aston Villa you know Aston Villa are a very very big side but they're not a top four side they're not a top six side you know it's like oh this is a special boy all this stuff but then you throw money in there this is his fee and City activated the fee so now he's at City a side which is hated by so many because they're so good you know like that's the logic you know imagine like people hate you because you're really good like, that's mm. the that's the argument that's a really weird thing I think anyway well moving to City 400 yeah. billion pounds. Yeah, yeah. There were Just people immediately t- Yeah, you're ticking you're ticking all the hate boxes, yeah. There. The, <laughs> like him failing now is gonna be the highlight of a season for some people. Um <laughs> so I think he does get that, but then in some way, like he was getting booed as soon as he came on at Wolverhampton um yesterday, and in fairness, like the Villa Wolves thing is a bit of a rivalry, but it's it's not, not like say Wolves West Brom or anything like that but that's it they don't all of a sudden they really hate the way he plays they hate the way he wears his socks over his shin pads they hate his hair they hate the fact he wins a ton of free kicks but you know a year earlier when he was doing it for England they were in love with it so um, yeah he does get a bit of that but then in the same it doesn't does it matter like it seems like he's got the mentality to almost embrace it and there's some people I know who do run on booze and if he ends up being one of them then I think he'll end up being a great signing
0: yeah right let's talk about your book <laughs> That's yes, okay. Go for it. Yes, go for it. Uh, kicking back. Uh, yeah, out seventeenth of May. So that's uh, what day are we on? Is that next Tuesday?
1: Is that correct? Yeah, that's there. Were it's interesting. You said next Tuesday. I'd call that this Tuesday.
0: <laughs> well, we've got so much to discuss. We won't go down that rabbit hole. You're really, wrong. Yeah. but you
1: know, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. You can you can call me wrong, but you're wrong about calling me wrong. But that's fine. Let's not let's not get into semantics, eh?
0: Uh, what, uh, first question is why did you decide to write a book? Did you have a a key objective in mind in doing so, or is it just something you always
1: thought you'd want enjoy doing? Um, what I would say is that I've been an incredibly private person for the duration of my life and especially in my career. You know, when you try and find me on social media, you've got the private account. Like I've got tons of requests, someone saying, can you follow me? But I like to class social media as being a real thing for me because everybody that I follow or follows me, I know in real life. So – the people who know me in life know my they know my business when they see me. We talk about it and so on and so forth. But I never really shared that with the outside. And as I say, I enjoyed being that private person. But then as soon as you start doing things like media, like your voice is there. You have a platform. And the platform is not just not to just discuss what you've just seen. It's to explain why what you've seen makes you feel the way that you do. And that's when there's more context that comes through things which you've done yourself. Like, insight is key. That's one of the things which I used to get told at BBC training. They want to hear the little stories, the little anecdotes. They want to be on the show and have a big discussion about, say, football today, how it was different back then, the different changes, like what's going through somebody's mind. And I think with the book, it was Hugh Ferris that came to me and said, I should do one yeah sorry it should do a book That's, he didn't tell me to do one like, <laughs> Come here, can you, let's do a book and um sorry yeah, all of a sudden I was like did that say that yeah I think I said that um and I wasn't really saying so I thought no but then before you know it he started to get me to talk about my career in general my life because I'd not seen him for a few years and there were some interesting stories and bits that came from it so he did a very very good selling job there and then from when we started writing it he was very good, so he had a ton of questions and stuff, which would take me back to certain moments. Like, why? How did you feel at this point? Why did you choose this? What? What was that like? Why were we involved in that? And then, before you know it, you realize that you know a lot. A lot's happened in my life. A lot's happened in my career, and a lot of stuff is being spoken about for the first time from my perspective. And it's my perspective that also brings in the perspective of others, and it's more of like a realistic depiction of very significant times where we believe we know what was going on. But the mm. truth is, you know, as a player, sometimes you can't say anything. You just have to keep moving. And, you know, some people will say the book's controversial and this, that, and the other, but it's not because I'm coming from a place of respectfully, like, telling that story of what it was and how I perceived it. But you can look back at the time, and I was never disruptive to anybody or anything, even if they were, like, my worst enemy. And I think yeah. you picked that out from the book. Well, for it,
0: in the notes, you're honest and frank in the book, as we'd expect. Yeah. Are, are you worried at all about you? Do, you, you, you by being honest, you obviously criticise people in the book. Yeah. Are you worried about a possible backlash, how it you, perceived, yeah. it's perceived? Or is there a lot of stuff you wanted to put in but couldn't?
1: I mean, there's, there's, there's more stuff which I would happily have put in if it, <laughs> if like I could be like honest honest but again I'm trying to be respectful yeah. so there's certain, mes- there's certain themes like you'll get an idea of how I feel about something but not to the level of detail if you know what I mean because like I'll explain it and I'll say how I didn't like this and it was because of that but emotionally at certain times like it was deeper than that but I don't want to I didn't want it to be a book just attacking people so yeah. say for example within the book itself I'm talking about Stuart Pierce. And I didn't understand sort of like some of the negatives that existed within him until I'd left. Didn't understand some of them until like I'm older now. So as I look back then, I can talk about how I felt in the moment, but how I feel about those moments now, you know, and what it led to. Because at that time, you know, it's like the, is it a butterfly effect? You know, one little flap of a wing Hmm. causes something much further down the line, but I hadn't lived the thing down the further down the line yet. So it's it's very honest. I'm sure some of the people mentioned in it will be very critical of me and me saying what I'm saying. But the book was only able to go forward with those stories in because I have other people who can back up these stories themselves. So that's the beauty of the situation. Like I've got no issues saying this is what it was. And some people will say, you know, I'm courting controversy, I'm seeking clout, this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, the book itself is my life. And you can say you like it, don't like it, but it's still my life. And it's not going to be amended because that's the reality of the situations that I went through. And as is the case with football, not everybody's going to like you. But for some of the people who really want to gain an insight into me and those periods where I was playing and just me in general through uh, my first years in Manchester and the like, you will definitely get it. And I think for the true, true fans of football and stuff like that, as I say, I think you'll buy into it because you're not going to see me on TalkSport releasing excerpts saying like, Harry Redknapp. Oh, he used to go around like killing dogs or something like that. You know what I mean? It's not mm. one of those. It's not one of those clickbait <laughs> things. You know what I mean? No, there's no clickbait in it. There's no clickbait. There's yeah. a story. There's context. There's opinion. There's feeling. And then it's how it affected me going forward and that, what it meant at that time. Like that's just what it is. If you get what I mean. Did mm-hmm. Harry Redknapp used to go about killing? Well, dogs no, no. But <laughs> but with I don't think so. I don't think so. No, Let, okay. I was going to say no, but I said don't think so. But the thing about <laughs> Harry was like the happiest I ever saw him was at a race course? Yeah, like literally but he's, it's not to say he was a bad manager because people were telling me he was a good manager but he wasn't a great manager for us in that time at the start so that there it's not like an attack on him it's yeah. a description of what he was like in that moment and he can look back and make a decision himself as to whether he thinks that's true but that's my opinion of what he was like in that spot but it's telling your
0: story isn't it? So you exactly
1: can so what's what what's controversy when you're telling your story mm. I've just written down this book is about identity yes yes it can is you, oh good
0: yeah <laughs> uh, can you expand on that in, in what way is it about identity or?
1: so so who I am means everything to me and I'm very very like precious about it like I hate for example being misunderstood because I think I'm a good person and I approach everything in a in a, in a fair manner like through my career some of my, my worst enemies have been treated with more respect than they've probably deserved but That's who I am. I want to be perceived as this guy. So 99% of people you could meet who spent time with me will say, oh, he's a really good guy. He's a nice guy. Cause that's that. And I make sure that that's how people perceive me. I'll say hello. I'll ask how people are like, that's who I am. That's what I stand up on. But then also the difference with me is that I sound like this, but I was born in Nigeria. I have like, that is my bloodline. I could be in a room full of, one hundred Nigerians or a hundred Mancunians, and I'd probably feel more at home in the room of, full of a hundred Nigerians, even though I might not know any of them. Like that's that's who I am. Not to say I wouldn't feel comfortable in a room full of hundred Mancunians because I I see that all the time. You know, I go to a stadium full of fifty, sixty thousand of them. So, but. That's who I am. It's different. I sound like this, but I've seen things through a different lens. I've grown up in in Manchester as the foreigner. I've been in the academy team, going on a pre-season, on like a preseason tour type thing. As we arrive back in Manchester, I'm in the other passport section, you know, so I've gone through that experience. Mm. I've been treated differently in that context. I've been treated the same in some contexts. And even, for example, uh, this is a very specific thing, and it's not necessarily political, but to do with Brexit and so on. There were some people who were lobbying to me saying we need to like, Leaves the European Union because of the, I think it's the Schengen visa or something like that. I said, it's a mess stop people coming in. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. That's fair enough. But then what they didn't realize was the fact that that's the visa that brought me into the country itself when I was five years old. So like, I yeah. sound like this, but I have a different story and I take pride in having both things there because then I can see things from so many different perspectives other than just one very specific one itself. Um, so that's, that's like, that's my identity it's evolved over time I've always thought I was I was a good person but now I take more things into account I understand different perspectives and I try and make sure that you know nothing's missed out can we have a true true conversation about the importance of things that really matter what will I stand up for now like I risked when I was in America I risked my job to stand up for something that I didn't believe was right Mm. but I was happy to do that because that's the right thing to do. When I was younger, I wasn't necessarily going to do that because I was concerned about say leaving city or yeah. you know being sacked and all this, but that's the way I'm now. So, I'm somebody who I think my friends, my family, and those who I work with can believe in, and I take huge pride in that. So that you know, that's essentially my identity. It took a long time to get to that point. Uh, so, so you came from that when you were five years old, is that? That's right? that's right, yeah. Did you have a love of football
0: from? At a very very young age. Did you realise you were very good at it from young age? <laughs> um, I mean, I remember yeah. back, right back in the day, reading obviously articles about you being a you were a great hundred meter sprinter. weren't you? That's right, yeah, that's yeah.
1: right, my friend, that is right. And in fact, I'm still doing some sprinting now. Um, I do. Uh, I'm essentially master's age now because I'm the over thirty five club, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I was I was good. Like I started playing for the school team when I was like eight or nine. So that was quite early. And then the school teacher gave me the number of a few uh, local teams. And before he you knew, I was playing for AFC Clayton. I don't think, I'm not sure if they're still going, but I was playing for them. I was playing my age group and the age group up. So that was Saturday and Sunday's football sorted. And... I was pretty good, like the very first award ceremony I went to, I think I picked up probably 80% of all the trophies available, whether it was Mm -hmm. man of the most, man of the matches, most goals, you know, players, player, coaches, player of the season, all that type of stuff. So I was pretty good from the get go. But then in the same breath, like I just enjoyed doing it. And even when I joined the academy from that age of 10 and so on, um, I was doing track, I was doing track from the age of 12. But I just, I just enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed keeping busy, but it was also a privilege as well because I was, um, I had to do well in school to get the chance to be able to go to these games and to go to the track and so on. So it was fun. And it was fun to do stuff with people who are the same age as me. You know, like to look back at my academy time at City, one thing I realized as well is, um, not everybody in that team had ambitions of playing for the first team. And I think we sort of get that, we forget that sometimes. Some people like, you think about it. They would be playing Sunday league if they weren't so good that they hadn't been scouted by a professional team. So you're, literally, that's, that was my Sunday league team, except I played for Man City. I was putting the shirts on every Sunday, you know. So yeah, I was good. I was one of the better players, but I just loved just playing football and it was playing football with my friends, tons of really, really good guys. But I got to play against Liverpool, Man United, Leeds, Blackburns, all that type of stuff. So yeah, I was, I was very good but you know i couldn't say like everything's been channeled into me becoming a professional footballer because the year before i went in full time at city i was doing track in the summer and i think i finished second that year no no i finished fourth in the hundred that year nationally uh, the year before i was second and then all of a sudden I, was, I realized that i can't do track anymore because football now runs from july through to may mm. and like those used to be the prime sort of moments from like july august september where i'd be out running the track anyway before the football season started so yeah, I was very good, but at the end of the day, like, it, did it matter? I don't know. I was just enjoying it, I guess. Yeah. Are you saying the book about feeling like a Mancunian through being in the academy? Yeah. If I said
0: that right? It, did it help you in a way? Yeah, 100%. Feeling did, like you yeah. belonged? Or?
1: Yeah, there was, a, there was a huge sense of belonging and identity at that point because, like, I, I supported City from young, mm. but it's like I was really supporting City when I was training at the same training ground as the first team. You know, they were at Platte yeah. Lane. I felt it when I was a ball boy. And I'm opening the door on the way out and I'm seeing all the City players in there. You realize like you're wearing the same Kappa shirt as say somebody playing at Main Road. You know, that brings that sense of identity. You spend more time around Mancunians because in some ways, like my family and I, where we lived in Miles Platten, like we weren't cordial with the neighbors because the neighbors were actually stealing from our house and stuff like that. So it was pretty much us. But then all of a sudden... I'm surrounded by people who I played with in the Sunday League and we spend a lot of time together. We're traveling around together. You get a feel for people who've lived in Manchester their whole lives and people who love City, you know, some people who love United and so on. And you get you, you realise you have a ton in common and it's, you know, some of it stems from your love of football and your love of Man City and like. So it really helped sort of bring me in line with where I was because up, coming from Nigeria, like those first few years, we were living in Manchester, but it was a very Nigerian household. There's no real British influence within it, but as time passed, like my sister was born in '95, and then by the time it was 2000s, the household was more of a mix, and it was like 50 50, and we sort of understood exactly where we were, and we were enjoying being a part of it. Hmm. Uh, in the academy,
0: do you have fond memories? Of course, being in the academy. Did was there a point where you it clicked with you that you could go all the way as a professional footballer, or did you have utter belief that that's where you'd end up, or were you no, still no. very unsure during these years about what the future held?
1: Uh, well, I, would, I so the first year I played in the Premier League, I was still doing my levels, so <laughs> right. I think that kind of answers yeah. the question from that perspective. But I, I remember, like as I say, I just enjoyed doing it, and you knew whichever year you were inv- you were at with the academy, you knew the next stage. So you got to 14, and you hoped to sign a contract that would take you to 16. By the time you're like under 16, you're getting the occasional calls to come and play for the under 17s on a Saturday. Then when you're in under 17s, do you get a call up to the under 19s? And then if you're getting called to the 19s, do you then play for the reserves? And then if you're under 19, do you get a call to go and train with the first team or train full time with the reserves over at Carrington instead of being at Platte Lane? So you understood all those little leaps, but within that, and you aspire to those as opposed to like thinking, oh, I'm under 16s, I'm going to play for the first team because there are a lot of steps to get to that point. Traditionally, and at the time, most of the people who were making their breakthrough, they were probably like 18, 19 and so on. So they'd already been in with the reserves for a little bit. So I was doing my uh, college work, I had ambitions of like doing university type courses, but then all of a sudden I made my debut at 17. And I'll never forget. It was, uh, I think I say this in the book. We played Man United in a derby at the regional arena next to the Etihad now. And it was like a four or 5,000 sellout it was. It was an incredible game. It was me and like Kieran Richardson. I was like fighting each other basically. And we (laughs) won the game. It was buzzing off. It It was brilliant. Finished that I think on a Wednesday. Then I was in college on a Thursday and I got a call from Les Chapman, the city kit man. He's asking me like, what number do you want to be? I was like, for what? He says, because you're in the squad for the weekend. So the next thing, this is whilst I'm at college. The next thing, I've got the number 16 for my first number. And I was on the bench for City versus Chelsea when Nicolas Anelka scored a penalty. And it's the only time Chelsea uh, lost a game that season under Jose Mourinho. And I went from being on 80 pounds a week to now having a 3,750 pound bonus uh, coming into me for the win for for sitting on the bench and not even coming close to getting on the field. (laughs) Like incredible times. And it just happens just like that. And from that point, like, you know, I was pretty much just in. Mm. So debut...
0: Was Arsenal? Is that correct? in the league? That's right. Yeah,
1: that's right.
0: Yeah. What was it like? I always the thing I've never asked. Next place. How do you prepare mentally? Because I was thinking about this recent weeks about. Obviously, it's probably hard, much harder as a youngster, I guess, because you don't have the experience. Is yeah. there a support network around you? I just wonder. You know, in recent weeks, how do city players deal with the Real Madrid match and the, yeah. the enormity of it, or the even the Wolves match or the West Ham yeah. match? Is that some of the hardest part for you? Was it just?
1: The yeah, focus and yeah, not fir- be nervous. Yeah. The the first, I think the first one is always an interesting one. Like, if you've been in a few squads and stuff, but you're not really close to playing, and mm. in fairness, now let me take it a step back. When you sometimes, when you play in the reserves, there'd be senior players who'd be coming down from the first team to get game time. And as a young player, you're looking at what they're doing. Like, I remember there was something within my career which stuck with me because of Gerard Vikings, and he'd always keep his watch on till just before he goes out to do the warm up. So you never needed to ask anybody for anything, never needed to ask anybody for the time. Like we'd know we'd be going out to warm up 40 minutes before the game. And he always knew exactly how long he had left between each section. So he's in total control. It's just nice and calm. And I remember watching him like when I was reserved, I thought, oh yeah, that's who I want to be. Yeah, I want to be like yeah. that. And I did it for 16 years off the back of Gerard Vickens. But for that game itself, you're then around some people you've trained with and they're trying to be supportive to you because they can sort of, sort of sense that maybe you're a little bit nervous. You don't really know what you're supposed to be doing. So there's just little nudges. Oh, we're going to be going out in a minute. Or you know, the manager's going to talk in a minute. They're going to do this, going to do that. And then as soon as you go out there, like you've got, it's a weird feeling walking down that tunnel for the first time, especially to like tens of thousands of people. But then in the same breath, it's like really exciting. And that transition from, Playing reserve games and you having the occasional first team and be there to now playing against Arsenal and you've seen all those players on TV. You know to be playing against Norwich in my first league game, I've seen all those players on TV. Like football, it's incredible that transition from watching football to being in football is insane, and it's yeah. the transition only happens at the latest second. But it was it was special. But you start playing, you understand the rivalries and stuff that you have. And it's nice when the crowd get right behind you. Do you know they cheer you, they clap, you clap for you when you make a tackle. You know you run forward, they're excited, and it's you just got to try and like play a normal game. But it's very hard to do that when you are basically just loving every second of an experience which you've mm-hmm. never had before, and there's no guarantee you'll ever have it again. Uh, is it fair to say Sean White Phillips was an
0: inspirational hero for you as you progressed through the youth ranks? Oh, one- did, and did he show? Was he absolutely? a driving force in that he should show that he could make it
1: to the first team through
0: the youth runs.
1: um he, he was. So within the, my sort of age group in the academy, the people who were sort of pinups as such, there was Joey Barton and there was Sean Wright Phillips and they had two different stories because Sean had been released by Nottingham Forest but like he was incredibly talented and from when he arrived at City people just knew it was inevitable that he was going to make it into the first team because he was so good, so hardworking, so humble, all that stuff. And then there was Joey who didn't have a contract at under 17 years, basically just getting paid expenses to go and train with the team, but he fought his way into that team. And then he was, he, I think he was ranked like number 41 or something. And he was, and he was good then. But with Sean, like you, you could get on with Sean more from the get go. Cause he was very, very welcoming. Every time an Academy player made it up to train with the first team, he was extra nice, made you feel welcome. And there were other players as well. Like whether it's Sylvan Distan, it was Richard Dunn and the like, Claudio Reyners, those sorts. But with Sean, you had the link to him because, you know, he'd been at Platte Lane. And I remember at Main Road, I remember being a ball boy for Sean during his Youth Cup run. You know, like, so I'd seen that side of it. Like, that's exciting as well, being a ball boy and being, like, you're in the stands, that's great, but I'm kneeling down behind the advertising, hoarding five meters away from a field which I would dream of playing on one day. Yeah. You know, that's that's incredible. So Sean was incredible with that. And when I we went up to Carrington's train for the first time, he was really good. I don't know if it was because his brother was there, Bradley Wright Phillips as well, but he was looking after Brad, myself, Stephen Ireland, everyone of my sort of age group. He was fantastic with us. And that made such a big difference. And then lo and behold, when I made it into the first team and I was playing right back for essentially the first proper time in my career, it made my job so easy because that was arguably the best season of his career. And all I had to do was just stand behind him, roll him the ball and say, <laughs> off you go. And it was, it, was, it was truly, truly incredible. And I think he understood as well because he'd been through it. The difficulties of trying to get into the trying to be in the first team for the first time. Only knew what it was to play for City. Say uh he did it. I think he did it at Main Road. He did it at the Etihad. And yeah, he was he was incredible. To be fair,
0: yeah, must have been gutting then when he was sold to Chelsea. Obviously, you weren't know about the financial situation. No at the club no. at the time. I don't think any anyone really did well, except obviously
1: board level. Uh, yeah, it must have been,
0: it must have hurt to see him go. Uh, yeah, I
1: think, Yeah, it did, yeah, and I think it hurt for the fans as well because, you know, he mm. was, the, at the time, the most significant player for City you could connect with as such. You know, we had good players, you know, we had Nicholas and Elker and stuff. I think he maybe left that summer as well, but this was like, this was Sean Wright Phillips, you knew the history of him, you knew like, it's just this little fellow that just tucks himself under people's arms and runs past them and smashes goals in. You know, you just seen him score 11, 12 goals in the Premier League, which wasn't normal for somebody playing out on the wing for Man City in the top division. You know, it's not like we'd had a ton of years in there over the last like 12, 13 years or whatever it was. So it was, um it was sad to, leave, to see him leave and you know, you, you hear him, he didn't want to leave either because Man City was his home. You know, that's why he ended up coming back further down down the road but I suppose this is the thing with football and again to mention you said we probably didn't know about the financial situation I'd argue like players themselves know very little about everything because you tend to just find out from a media announcement and I think in some ways that's probably for the best because if we all did we'd just be nervous wrecks wouldn't we oh
0: hmm. <laughs> well, yeah uh, we need to talk about Stuart Pierce. I'm not going to go I, uh, I interviewed Brian Horton when his book was out yeah and went through th- everything in intricate detail I think he said at the end uh hopefully tongue-in-cheek. No no one needs to buy the book now because you've been through every bit of it. Yeah. But, uh, so I'm, I'm not intending to do that. Uh, please read the book, everyone. But it's so hard not to because there's so much I want to talk about. Yeah. I've obviously talked to you before. But Stuart, just briefly, yeah, I won't go through your City career, obviously year by year or anything like that. But uh, Stuart Pearce, he was good for you at first because it's when you start getting the football. Yeah. Well, it's fair to say that by the end... <laughs> Yeah, by the end it's a different, different story. relationship.
1: Yeah, yeah. He, so he was the he was one of the assistants or one of the coaches when uh, Kevin Keegan was in charge. And it was Kevin Keegan who actually gave my debut, and Stuart was like one of the most important roles in football. Is like the bridge between the players and the manager, and Stuart was that, especially with the younger guys. So you're not going to spend a lot of time as a 17, 18-year-old going to the manager and say, oh, excuse me, excuse me, Gaffer, excuse me, Mr. Keegan. Mm. You know, that's just not a normal conversation. But Stuart would do that and he'd go and help you work on things which you needed to work on, whether it was clearances, like playing out from the back, all that jazz. And he was good from that standpoint. So Kevin left. And then when Stuart came in, I think I basically went straight into the side and I played in basically every game leading up to the end of that season, uh, 2005, where we had a chance to qualify for... Do you wait for a cup if we beat Middlesbrough? So the first obvious red flag is when David James is playing up front. You know what I mean? At the time, like, I feel like that didn't really get enough coverage because picture that in today's football, something he, like that happening.
0: He had his own shirt, didn't he?
1: Yeah, no, that... All right, look... For To talk about that moment again, we had to win that game to get into the UEFA Cup. I remember be- it all too
0: well, yes. And
1: before the game, Stuart Pierce has had to get a shirt printed for David James to be able to go on outfield. Like, you what? Know, David James wasn't out there wearing his goalkeeper top. They had to get a <laughs> shirt printed. On, yeah. <laughs> exactly. They had to get a shirt printed. Yeah. So he's pre-planned this. Like, that's really weird. That's really, really weird. So, you know... He was quirky in terms of having his little doll or whatever by the side of the field. He'd be running on the pitch and all that stuff. And he, yeah, exactly. Like that stuff was all fine, but you know, this is the looking back thing because I was younger. It wasn't really like the biggest the flags overall in terms of some of the stuff he was doing. And he was only the he was the second manager I ever had. But in time, you realize some of the stuff which he was doing back then just doesn't add up. And then I think it was the next year. I remember getting like quite a bad knee injury, and I don't go down for anything really. But my knee, it was my medial ligament. I think Laporte might have hurt his yesterday, but it was that, but I completely like shredded it basically. And I was on the, it was after Mikhail Bischoff, remember that name? Yeah. Mikhail Bischoff like yeah. landed on the outside of my knee and my knee rolled inside. I'm on the floor. I'm like nearly in tears. And then Stuart's like, I'll just play on, he's fine. Like that cut me deep because yeah. I don't stay down. That really cut me and I ended up being out for three and a half, four months off the back of that. Couldn't even walk up the stairs that night to sleep in my sleep in my bedroom. I was just basically just laying on the sofa for the next few days. So that upset me. And then he became the manager in under-21s. And he was good. I was playing, all that stuff. And then going into the the last... So I, I was involved in 21s for three cycles. There was a 2005 cycle where we didn't qualify because we lost in the playoffs to get there to France, which had a Frank Ribery in it. Then the next year, we were in the semi final, loss to the Netherlands. Uh, which had a Ryan Babel in it and a ton of other players if you want to go and look back at that uh, tournament. And then in 2009, this was my last cycle and I was expected to potentially be captain. Then the tournament started, I wasn't captain because I had a little niggle. And then I'll never forget, we're playing against Germany in the final. Like it's England against Germany in the 21s final. Like it's it's very significant in a tournament where like, this is my last game for the 21s because after this I'm ineligible and we're 1-0 down. And he came in at half time and he took me off. And
0: For like that silence,
1: you, that silence, which you've just heard there, is exactly like yeah. what happened in the dressing room. And you were because replaced he, with another central defender. I right? was replaced with another centre back in Michael Mancian. Yeah. I wasn't having a bad game. And I was the most, well, behind James Milne, I think I was the most senior, the most capped player. Like, I was just like, I was thinking, what? I had my family across to the far side. It's the European under 21 championship final mm. as one of the senior players, one of the captains of the team. And I'm off at half time. And he never to this day explained why. But I was distraught. I couldn't even go out for the second half for 20, 30 minutes because my head, I was just thinking, what's this? Is this how it's ending? Like, what's this? So the game fit, well, I went out to the second half in the end. We lost 4 0. Literally three goals scored in the second half. So clearly that was a great substitution. People want to be critical of bringing Gundogan on. Like they went from one nil to four nil. Like I think that's a bad substitution. (laughs) Um, Well, right. is a good friend of mine, but that doesn't add up because he had another cycle to go. He was going to play for the next two years because that's Mm. his age group. I remember like just being distraught, got my medals, gutted. Like what, what, like what is this? How has this happened? I've been doing this for four years and this is how it ends. Then after the game he didn't still didn't say anything uh we were in the hotel afterwards i was just i was gutted like it wasn't the result was bad but i was just gutted about my own situation then when we landed back in the midlands the next day he, we, we all had to leave through this door to um to like exit and go to our cars and so on and he was standing there shaking people's hands and he tried to shake man and he said no i'm not happy i said, I don't like what you've done and i'll never and i'll never forget it and literally to this day i still don't forgive him for it because he just didn't need to do it. And it was that quirkiness of Stuart Pearce where, you know, in the time, it feels like it's okay, but you realize soon after that, no, it's absolutely not. And with the time he was at City as well. Like Joey Barton now as a coach, I don't know what he's like, but as a person around that time, he was really toxic. And I remember just before when I said there were two types from the academy who you could look at, there was Sean and there was Joey. Joey was never welcoming to people from the academy. He yeah. was actually the exact opposite. And I think Stuart could have dealt with that yeah. earlier. And who knows, maybe some people could have had longer careers at City, could have just shone a bit better at City. Maybe Joey wouldn't have done some of the stuff that he did further down the line because I know he's had a tough upbringing and all that stuff. But, you know, this is football. No one person should be bigger than the club. And especially when you look back. And see, he was like 22, 23 years old when he was really running amok at the club. And it just doesn't add up now looking back. But Stuart, kind of unfortunately let that happen. Was it weak management? uh, Yeah, Joey
0: Boss probably... I don't know too scared to do anything with Barton or is it possibly the way, with, the way with clubs that basically at that time is one of our better players. Yeah, that that player you, yeah. you turn a blind eye to so that sort of thing. Yeah, but,
1: that, that that's a for me that's a small club mentality yeah. because as you look at this city team now if anybody falls out of line they leave the squad and they'll be replaced. But in other places I've been to where the better players mess around managers can be scared of dropping them because there'll be criticism from the fans and from people yeah. from the outside. But like for Joey at that time like he was a good player He always has been a good player but like I say I'm seeing him like kicking people in the head I'm seeing some of the verbal things he's doing to people he's like bullying certain people and all this stuff and it's just like what what is this I had no voice at the time but what what is this and why mm-hmm. is this acceptable and why are you letting this happen as you're the manager of the football club you know you let it happen as a consequence like I look back and I think no, nah, he's, he's completely missed the point there and for somebody so young to be allowed to do that much, Again, like he's a good player, but he's not the best player the world has ever seen. So why let it happen? Mm. Uh, you talk about your disappointment with Stuart
0: Pace, the under twenty ones. Do you have regrets or anger that you didn't represent
1: England, didn't get a chance to represent England, or get no. More youth no. no? No, 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 no. I've got no. I've got no anger towards that at all. Like I would have loved to have had that opportunity, but like the way football's changed a lot, like from when I was playing under 21s, there was no real link to the first team as such. But these days, you know, they train at St. George's Park and if somebody drops out for England, you know, the first point to be considered is somebody in the 21s. Maybe I would have had more of a sniff at that sort of point, but, you know, careers can't necessarily be defined by those. I would have loved to have been recognised internationally, but it is what it is. There are more people like me than there are who get the chance to play Mm -hmm. 5, 10, 15 games for a national side. And it you know it is what it is I played I've played I played for 16 years played over 400 games you know as you used to play that very first one you can't even comprehend the thought of playing of playing 10 let alone like 100 so yes yeah, so it's it's a shame but it is what it is and ironically ironically this is what gets me the most the best I ever played was after I left city and towards the end of my career because I understood the game so much better yeah I could do whatever was needed and that is the shame because I would have liked to have experienced some of that or given something a bit more when I was at City because perhaps I would have stayed longer or maybe not because maybe Mancini just didn't like me. Who knows? But it's just the it's just the sad fact of football, unfortunately. You do your best when, you know, the limelight's no longer on you sometimes. Do you think... I mean, you mentioned before, I think when we spoke
0: about Man, Roberto Mancini, did he view... You got injured... You were injured before, as he arrived, is that correct? That's right, yeah. I got injured he, in the Sunderland game as Mark Hughes was sacked. Yeah. Does he view players... Seems like Stuart Pearce seemed to, did you view players with injuries as being weak in some, you know, is it like some bizarre thing that getting d- injured somehow puts you down the <laughs> pecking order?
1: He was, um, so with the Stuart Pearce thing and me, I think he just completely missed the point And I think he needed to have like a, a lighter touch on that because I was in a lot of pain at the time and he wasn't doing that with tons of people, but with Roberto, like he didn't, he didn't believe in our medical staff. He always thought that they were lying and trying to keep people out for longer. And say somebody could be in, could be injured and they're going to be out for two weeks. Roberto might come in there and say, "No, this isn't two weeks. This is like four or five days." And then for every day that went past that four or five days, he's looking at you and the medical staff with a bit of a dirty eye because he thinks right. that you're just conspiring. And he, the thing with him, like I don't know if he, he might be different now. Who knows? But he had his opinion of what was right in terms of football and how things should be done. And if you did it outside of that, then you were very much wrong. Like Craig Bellamy was there, and he'd had knee injuries in the past. And he could train two days, but then had to have a day off. Yeah. Then Roberto comes in and says, right, if you want to play on Saturday, you've got to train Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and that's all it is. But Craig's 30, 31 years of age. You know, he's played a lot of time ta- a lot of games across a lot of years. And now he's being told that he has to change who he is. Otherwise, he's not going to get the opportunity to play. Like that's how adamant he was. Like Roberto brought in a few people into the medical team as well to oversee what was going on. And then certain people would only would have to go directly to like his Italian uh, physio and whatever, because he didn't trust any of the other people. But these are the people, they've been at the club for years. You know, these are good guys. These are people really good at their jobs. Like yeah. one of them now is at United, one of them's at Liverpool, you know what I mean? But like, no, they were just told you guys aren't good enough. You're not doing a good enough job. You're trying to keep players out. And he almost felt at times like people conspiring against him. And I think because of how good he was as a player and how he perceived things to be, he thought everything should be to that same standard. And he thought, then maybe, as I say, he might have changed now. But he believed he had the answer and knew everything about everything, and you couldn't argue that point with him because ultimately he he held all the power.
0: Because of this, obviously, you go on loan to Sunderland. You eventually join QPR. Has mm-hmm. it in any way the way it ended? And of course, there was you talk, fact in the book about events off the. Uh, pitch of course the problem with the email that was going on as, as your mother was trying to negotiate a contract that obviously must have hurt you did
1: you did it tarnish your feelings towards the club or city or were you able to yeah. separate your love of the club no 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 you can't separate it when you're no. in it you can't separate it and I'll be honest at the time like I'm fine now but I mm. hated Roberto Mancini and everything that he stood for like literally hated him if I could just bury him at the like just leave him at the bottom of the sea with a weight attached to him. Like I just, I would do that. Like I hated this guy because he'd completely changed my life. I was very much set in Manchester with my family, with my friends playing for my team. And now all of a sudden, like everything's changed and I don't know why. I never explained why. And I couldn't overcome that. And that was tough. So now I'm thinking about having to leave. Like you talk about loyalty and stuff. I was a fan playing for Man City. I'd never considered for a split second leaving the club. And I was like, well, you've got to go. Well, how do I do that? Like, even when QPR uh, had a bit accepted by City, I got a call from someone from City and he said, oh, the bid's been accepted. And I was like, okay, so what? He said, yeah, you got to go down. I was like, well, <laughs> yeah. what do you mean I've got to go down? Like, when's this? He said, you got to go down now. It's like, beg your pardon. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's how I was as a person. So it, it frustrated me, but it also frustrated me because I knew what he was like with all those players. And a lot of those guys really didn't enjoy playing for him. Like, they enjoyed winning and stuff like that but they rallied around each other as players as opposed to around the manager as well. And it frustrated me then because he was getting such great coverage, you know, of his scarf and his hair flicks and all that stuff back then. But you knew the story, like as a player, when you know the real story, but you can't tell it, like it does hurt, it pains you, it really frustrates you. Like it was the same with with Harry Redknapp. Like I think Harry was a great manager in the past, but he wasn't great with QPR for the, the majority of the time he was there. Mm. But whenever you you get asked a question about him, it's like, oh, it must be great to have someone like Harry Redknapp at the helm, based on all the good things that he's done in the past and how fantastic a manager he is. Like at that point you can either say yes or no, but you can't really say the no because immediately it's controversial. So we end up just perpetuating the stuff which is actually a lie at that time. Uh, and there was a ton of that with River um, Roberto. And I say I left City and I loved some of the guys on that team because these were my real good friends. They're still my good friends to this day, whether I play football with them, go and eat with them and so on, go to like birthday parties and I like. But him at the helm, like it, the shirt wasn't the same for me. It really wasn't the same for me because I just thought he was just horrible. I just hated him. And I don't now, just for clarity, I don't now. So we don't need to clip this up too much. I do not do that now. <laughs> but in the moment, like just picture how you'd feel if you were a city boy and somebody came and it changed absolutely everything for you. Wonder if, ask yourself if you'd, if you'd feel fine with it or if you'd probably be in the same sort of situation that I was in.
0: Mm. Well, don't worry, we're not talk sports, so I don't think you're, <laughs> be, I don't think you're being clipped up. Okay. Not by yours anyway. But, no, uh, good, 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 good. Good, good, uh, You're also right about the huge problems of racism in football and in your life. Uh, how constant an issue was it in your life uh, um, as a youngster and an adult? And... Has basically <laughs> the obvious question: I need to. Has football failed in dealing with racism? And have you, has there been any improvements in recent times that you can see? Or are yeah. we really just not really evolving so, much?
1: So, so to start with, like I think one of the issues we have is that racism as a concept sometimes is within sport gets put on the back pages, not the front pages. Yeah. And so you can try and create this sort of thing where, like, the back pages change every single day because there's a new game so something could happen today which is ridiculous it will be aligned with football but then the next day if somebody wins a game that's now the back page that's the main headline so it can be brought in and moved on very very quickly and and it has changed an awful lot over the years whether it's a case of you know it's moved on along with general society I'm not sure but some of the things that have been said some of the thought processes and so on or people's perceptions and so on of, of certain players and the like like I've lived through that like even to this day I'd say it's, it's a lot better. I can have conversations with people now who don't just look like me when something happens, which isn't right. Uh, like say for years I'd be followed around shops and stuff like this. This is when I was first coming through at city. So it wasn't like a known face or anything like that. Uh-huh. And it's like, well, why can't I, I remember my mom and I went into a VW garage to try and buy a polo for me, which was my first car. And nobody would serve us because they thought there's no way these guys are going to be able to afford a car in this VW garage. You know, stuff like right. that is a thing. Yeah. That's a, a legitimate thing. And even to this day, like I'm, I'm conflicted because people recognize my face in and around Manchester because I've played for one of the teams. And that's the case with everyone who's done it. But there was a guy the other day as I was walking over the bridge from, um, from m in town and he's a security guard and he was looking at me. So I looked at him and he kind on looking at me. I looked at him as I'm walking away and he, I'm thinking, he's, I bet he's still looking. So I turned around and he's still looking at me, but I'm conflicted because I don't know if because he knows that I played football. Yeah, I or this guy. Taking, yeah. Or if he's wondering if I'm taking, yeah, or if he's wondering I'm taking something out of the shop because that's mm. the split in terms of what my life has been. Yeah. And I remember I was doing something for Umbro one time in a warehouse. We've been in there for like three, four hours. Then I copped out, got in my car, and then I'm immediately pulled over because they say my car's been involved in a robbery somewhere. Like what, what we, what we're talking about but as I say I think it has gotten better because some of the conversations that can be had now although some people are tired of it I think some of the conversations can be that can be had now are different to ones where in the past you just had to just accept it suck it up because nobody cared and someone will say that you're lying whereas now I think there's a greater appreciation for different perspectives
0: is is it inspiring or depressing that players like William i have to be at the forefront for change to happen in the game
1: I think um one thing I'm finding in media and just in life, again, because I'm I'm like pushing this, I'm pushing this. Like I like the full context with things and I like to question things. So sometimes I play devil's advocate over things which I don't really care about. But I think it sort of benefits the situation. And when somebody can present an argument against certain players, I ask them, Well, why do you think that? And they might have an answer. So I say, But why do you think that? And then before you know it, it starts to disappear. And you start to realize that someone someone doesn't suit someone's eye or whatever. And you 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 sort of think, well, why doesn't this player suit you, right? Because somebody else is doing the exact same thing, but you don't hate that person. Even if it's to do with, say, for example, uh, a couple of years ago, like some people I know hate Floyd Mayweather because he's too flashy, but they love Conor McGregor. Uh. So I'm saying, well, what 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 are we talking about? Like, what do you mean by that? Because you're in love with Conor McGregor because of the way he carries himself, but you hate Floyd Mayweather because of the way he carries himself. So you're thinking, well, what else links, the t- what's different about the two? Um, but for Raheem, you know, I appreciate what he's trying to do. And he, he's, you know, people will judge him for football and said he judged him fairly, but as is the case with him and other people, I don't think some people have, and they don't realize that that's what they're doing, but it can go a long way. And to provide another example, um, in terms of like subconscious mindsets, which you have to challenge yourself. I think it was after September 11th for like a few months after I'd be on a plane. And if I saw somebody that was Arab, there's something within me, which thinks, oh, hang on a second, but it's completely irrational. It's completely irrational. And I understood that. And as a consequence, I just behave like, this is just stupid. But when people, when you see people presented on platforms in a negative light, then, you don't understand how far that can go when you don't spend a life where there's tons of diversity, if you get what I mean. Like you're a minority in England if you are black, but if you, so if you only see, um, for example, black people on TV being arrested or black people on TV being criticized for being flashy or being this or being that and you live in an area which doesn't have black people or you don't know any black people at all, then that's your general perception of it, which is why for say a lot of my childhood, people would be crossing the road when they saw me come in but all I'm doing is just trying to walk to my house or something, you know. So like this type of stuff matters, and the more people can be out there being a positive role model, that's great. But it's just a shame that the moment something bad happens, then they're very they're a lot quicker to be vilified than say other people would be.
0: Uh, you, you've been racially abused in a football ground. Is that correct? yes? That's is right. Fo- it's football authorities as such that yeah, you know, whoever rules game are they wildly underachieving in what they're doing with racing and football. I, I mean, think. What, what, what would you want to see happen more? To, um, I mean, obviously you can't eradicate it, but there's got to be, yeah, there's got to be a line between both punishment and I guess education is important.
1: Yeah, of, of course, yeah, I think the education part is is very, very important. But then also, I think the buy into education is more important because you can offer the, you can offer the books and the concepts, but people have to want to be involved. And I think that's what we've seen across the last two years. It almost feels like there are two camps, people who want to learn about things and so on, not just to do with, say, racism or just discrimination in general, and other people who say, no, things are fine the way they are and I don't want to receive this. So, you know, how do you get that into the other people? Because to a certain extent, like if it's not directly affecting them, then does it really matter? And that's what we saw in some ways last year or whenever it was with UEFA. As soon as there was a threat of the Super League, you realize how big and mighty UEFA can be when they're off, when they're threatening mm-hmm. to throw people out of competition and saying to these players, if you let this happen, this is what it will be. But then in the same breath, there was a guy who racially abused one of the Rangers players and he had like a short ban of like, was it five, six games or something like that? And it's because for them, they can get away with the bare minimum because it's still, it's still more than nothing. But then, like, until it costs them money, does it really matter, you know? And you face, you, you really, really, like, look into it. Whenever money is involved, you start to see the strength that, say, some of these organizations and stuff can have, whether it's football clubs, whether it's leagues, co- other competitions and are like. But until it costs money, it won't. But then who's going to be the person who says, well, if you do this, it's going to cost you money. It's not going to be anyone because the powers that be, it's not in their best interest and the bare minimum gets them by because it's more than nothing. And you can always increase on the bare minimum without going to a point whereby it's significant. So I think football can do more, but inevitably it won't do because for them, the cost benefit of it all, like, is it really worth it overall to be that strong over th- something which doesn't really affect their pockets? Indeed, sadly true, I
0: think. Look, it's... Uh, let's talk about a day I think we both enjoyed by the end of the day.
1: <laughs> Less yeah.
0: enjoyed... During the course of the day, that's right. Yeah, it is. Of course, as we speak tomorrow, as we record this, the tenth anniversary of Manchester City versus QPR. Uh, you've moved to QPR under Mark Hughes. You, it was in the January, wasn't it? Transferred. He was. Didn't? Yeah. He, yeah. He was. Yeah. So you'd not, you'd only been there a few months. Uh, how did you feel leading up to this match as a City fan? Of course, at QPR, who need may need
1: a result to stay up. It must have be was it conflicted, or were you just a QPR nah.
0: player, and that's
1: all that matters? no i was I was a I was a qPR player and it was weird. it was as like I said before, like I detested Roberto Mancini. My love for the club in terms of my life was at the lowest point at that yeah. stage you know, so then winning the title was significant because I didn't want United to win it, but then in the same breath, like I wasn't going to be jumping up and down hugging Mancini afterwards because like <laughs> as i say yeah. I, d- I didn't like him, but there were people on the side like Joe Hart like Micah Richards and the like, like Pablo, tons of other people like this, who I'd spent a lot of time with across the years, who I knew, and I knew how hard they'd worked to get the opportunity to be trying to win a league. Cause I was there for the first six months of the season. Like I'd seen it firsthand. I saw what was going into it. So, um, going into the game, I was more so concerned about just being embarrassed. Cause I thought if this goes wrong, I'm going to be relegated in front of, in the stadium, which I used to call my own by the fans no. who used to cheer me on in front of the manager who I hate. And I'll never get the chance to be anywhere near that sort of level again because I left QPR to play in the Premier League, not to play in the Championship. So I was worried about it. like I'm a typical—you'd call me a typical City fan at that time. You're always perceiving the worst possible thing could happen at any given point, and I was very much along with that. But from my QPR perspective, so it was weird arriving. Like even the fact that we're taking the train up to Manchester for an away game. Well, that's me going home. We're staying in this hotel on Peter Street, and I know the ins and outs of it. Like the journey to the stadium, and then, like, you're then taking this turn and that turn, seeing this person and that person. Like, I know all the people, I could tell people how to go around. It's like I was showing somebody around my home, but it's like I don't live there anymore. So it was very, very weird. And then, when I'm playing against those players and playing that environment, I'd never, I'd literally never experienced that before. So that was a first, and it was weird. And in the end, obviously, things worked out great for both of us. But there was a point after that third goal goal goes in, and I say the third goal, I don't say Sergio's goal, because at the time I didn't know who'd scored the goal for two days afterwards, Like even though I was like 10 yards away. After that third goal goal goes in, I'm thinking the worst possible thing has happened because, again, I lost the ball for the goal. So I thought I've relegated myself and this team, and now we're going to have to deal with the after effects of it. And it's the worst moment ever. But then you realise I realised when the QPR fans were celebrating and Mark Hughes and the staff were celebrating on the sideline that it didn't matter. And that sense of relief was unbelievable. And then just being out on the field of the sun shining in Manchester on the last day of the season and everybody's happy. Like I never felt that feeling again of everybody in the stadium being happy. Yeah, I know. But it was um it was certainly a nice one for sure. Not sure so everyone realizes. You were to blame for the goal.
0: I know oh. you're saying, you're saying in the book. Uh, it's not always the very last person in a move that's
1: that's culpable for a goal. Yeah, this was definitely you were me. nowhere near the goal. Yeah, <laughs> nowhere near. Yeah, but you know, as a player, like when you've done something like when it, the QPR the year after when we went down, and a big turning point was when I remember we had a corner against Aston Villa away, and we were one 0 up, and we got the ball in the corner. And he just started doing step-overs. Then he lost it and they went down and scored. And we lost all momentum that we'd built over the like two, three weeks prior. Mm. So you know little moments, but the goal, like that came from our corner. And in that one, like to add even more context to this recently, I've seen a video which was sent to me by a, a guy I was doing an interview for. And he said, when did you know that you, were up? you stayed up? And I said, it was after the third goal. And he said, but was that when it actually happened? I said, I thought so, but he said, no. And as I've got the ball in my hands for this throw-in, mm-hmm. five yards away from me, the QPR bench is celebrating. Because I literally throw throwing right in front of them, but I didn't know that that's what was going on. So I was playing on as if we still had something to play for. That's why I went after throwing and giving it away. I'm sprinting back in to try and affect it. But if I knew, maybe I would have done something differently. Maybe I would have celebrated. Maybe the ball wouldn't have come into play straight away. And maybe 20 seconds later, Sergio's not scoring that goal. You know, it's amazing like what my distinct lack of like awareness has done to the history of Manchester City. Because if you know, as I say, if I check my shoulder. I might have thought ah game's over. This is all happy days. Here you go. Just just take that in the corner or something like that. Who knew it. You deserve a statue then for messing up the folks. Yeah, there should be a statue of me taking a throw in, but have it pointing <laughs> but have it pointing towards the Etihad though cuz I'm throwing the ball back into play for City go and do something great. The sliding door moments are just astonishing on that Yeah, day, for sure. On that day I mean,
0: in, well, in much of the history, yeah. In so many games, yeah. So, yeah, it was weird. I think I wouldn't have realised at the time because I was just too down to it. But I was next to to the away fans, and I think they started celebrating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just before you – yeah. I think Sean White Phillips wandered up the pitch, didn't you, with the ball anyway? Yeah, Yeah.
1: then it was a throwing. It's the time – honestly, when someone sent me this video, it's a a video from the East stand, and the sheer timing of it, I have got the ball in my hands looking upfield, and five yards away from me, all the bench are jumping up and down and celebrating. Mm -hmm. And I was none the wiser till 10 years later. That's how. That's wow. how. That's how. Such a lack of awareness from me in terms of even like knowing that moment, but then also just not being on the internet to know that's the real story of that day itself. So, did you feel like celebrating
0: after the match because QPR?
1: Yeah, most most definitely because it was a huge sense of relief. Like, what yeah. some what some fans and just people involved in football don't really take into account, like when you see like Gary Neville's or Rio Ferdinand's and stuff talking on TV and about, you know, a team that's failing because they've only won one game in a month and this, that and the other. Like it's hard down there. There's some very, very dark times. And when you're not winning week in, week out, like football's not fun. You're working hard, you're being paid and all that, but it's not fun. And it's hard to just keep bringing yourself in because you don't play to lose. And as well, if we would have gone down, 90% 90% of the squad would have had their pay cut in half, people would have lost their jobs. There's tons of stuff that comes with the relegation. And that's why when you play and you do manage to stay up, you're not celebrating finishing 17th. You're celebrating the fact that like there's job security for the people within the organization for the yeah. next year. You know, that's that's huge. So you celebrate that. And I never understood that until I got in that situation. That I really felt it. But to describe the difference between that, because after the game, myself and Tronite Flips were Invited over to speak to some of the city guys, and there were beers in our QPR dressing room, but champagne in the city one. So that's the sort of like that's the <laughs> mir- that's the difference between say survival and uh, and, a t- and a league title.
0: I mean, I have no absolutely no recollection of. Yeah, I was in the ground of what happened after full time.
1: (laughs) Oh, oh, listen, I do. Because I was trying to, before the game, I thought, if City win this, is this going to be a pitch invasion? Because this is my city. Like, the stadium, it's a big old stadium. It's a new stadium. You know, it's a club trying to be successful. And, like, I associate, like, pitch invasions with, like, smaller football league type things, if you know what I mean. You don't really see it in the Prem. But then all of a sudden, like, the game was over. And I was trying to get to Joe Hart. And I had to fight off about 100 people to get to him. (laughs) Like this is this is really surreal. And people came up to me say, "Oh, we did it. We won the league." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah. We we yeah, we stayed up. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's right. Yeah, we did stay up. You're right. Thank you." There was a fan that ran on, slipped as he got to the players,
0: and slid tackle about four of the city players. <laughs> I always <laughs> remember know. that. So he completely slipped just as he approached them and took about three of the players out. So, but I, I mean, did you were you there? Do you watch City lift the trophy or that? No, I'm no. relying on you for the memory of this no. day because I no, just no. don't.
1: Yeah. No. what, what happened, um, was, so for me, like I say, it ended up being a perfect scenario because city won the league. I did an interview afterwards and I said, mm. and you know, I'm, I'm a prophet. I said, you know, this could be a very, very significant moment for them in the club's history. You know, I think they're building for something, blah, blah, blah. blah. That's the, like, that's when I knew uh, to be fair, I was going to be, a, I was going to be a broadcaster. Like that's the hottest take delivered. That's come true. You know, that's 10 years worth of growth on that one. <laughs> and, um, after the game, as I say, I did the press, and my family were in the uh, the QPR section, and I live 15 minutes away. Still to this day, I'm in the same house now. I'm 15 minutes away from the stadium. So I thought, oh, this is brilliant. The season's over, and I can be home whilst all the City fans are in the stadium. City are lifting a trophy, and I can just get home and just like kick back and just re- Kick back, you see, I-, I named it there. Yeah, kick back <laughs> and relax. <laughs> and um, so I-, I did all my stuff, said bye to everyone. Then I was waiting outside uh, the West stand, waiting for my fans to come out but the QPR fans were trapped in yeah. so I thought oh for goodness sake and phone signal was a disaster since there were still 40,000 people there thought this is a mess so I ended up waiting outside for ages didn't see the trophy lift or anything like that and then they let City fans out first and everyone's coming up and say oh man congratulations we did it I'm like yeah yeah we, we stayed up yeah we totally stayed up yeah thank <laughs> you thanks for that but again in the end like I, I made it home because this is how different it was I was home within like half an hour because of the traffic mm but those other guys were going to go and get the bus to get the train to get down to travel to the training ground down in London, but I was back home. Like a game, the last game of the season being in Manchester is was an incredible feeling because like, as I say, Manchester is still always home. Hmm.
0: Well, time is defeating us, so I'm sorry for overlooking. You were QPR for, what, you, I think he's Last Time I tried to mention stats to you, I got it completely wrong. That six serves, and a half
1: years, six and a half years to be right for using Wikipedia, but over 200 appearances is that like yeah, it's like 227 or something like that. And the danger of Wikipedia is if you don't scroll all the way down, you don't know the full context of how many games it is, yeah. And at the top, it's always just league games, but you go all the way down because all these games matter, my friend. All these yeah, games indeed. matter, yeah. Uh, and you went to America, real salt lake,
0: so I don't know my right order, yeah, yeah, uh, that's right, yeah. Was that? What made you uh, do that? And you, you know, have you absolutely loved to uh, you know, having that at the end of your career, going to do something completely different like that?
1: Yeah, I, I loved it. Yeah, because I left when I left QPR, I, I was captain there for the last three years that I was there, and in the last season, I got voted players' player of the season. So I thought I've got my stock; it couldn't be any higher at the football club. You know, I was very was very well liked by the players, all that stuff. And the next thing. Um, the deal that they offered me was basically like a pay-as-you-play deal. It was really weird. It was like really, really, really weird with a really low basic and they tried to put things on an appearance bonus. And it was weird because I had another year which was supposed to be activated when I hit a certain appearance amount, but it said they can't do that and they won't do that. So I thought, this is this is strange. So I couldn't take that deal and left on bad terms as such with the ownership, but not necessarily with the club, the fans, because I, I, like one of the highlights – of my career was walking around the stadium after the end of the last game. They're all shouting chief. Like that was nice with my kid. That was really, really nice. But, um, yeah, I looked at the market for what it was and say how much money people were going to be perceiving me to be. And like, at this point, as I say, I'm player of the season, so I'm in good form and it wasn't what you hoped it to be because at this point football had changed to the point where if you're a free agent and you're over 30 years of age, you'd probably not as desirable as you would have been 10 years prior. You know, I was very close to my peak, but they weren't interested so I thought, okay, well, as somebody who's always thought like the idea of play, playing abroad, I thought, let me look in Europe. But then the focus on young players in Europe was even more great than, say, in the USA. Mm-hmm. And then that summer, Michael and I think, went to New England. Rooney went to uh, DC United. And once I had the idea of going to the USA, like it never left my brain. So I thought, I'm going to try and do this. So I ended up doing it, loved it because, not least of all, because in the first, um, in the first, like a couple of games I played, I'm trying to learn about new players, new leagues, new divisions, traveling traveling around on playing everywhere with like time zone differences, jet lag. And as you go and play against people, you're playing against them for the first time. And the last time I felt that was when I was 17, 18 years of age, making my way in the Premier League. So somebody was running at me and I'll never forget, I didn't know whether it was right footed, left footed, strong, quick, like I didn't know anything skillful. So you have to go back to this sort of like primitive state of just trying to just play in football and really figuring it out and putting maximal effort in because, sorry, I'm ranting it, but the thing that sort of goes That's missing fine. within football yeah. is that the players you see are all great. But when you play against each other twice a season for about 10 years, yeah. you know, there's a reason why they're not like flying into tackles with each other and stuff like this, because there's a mutual respect which comes from playing against each other all the time. So you know what people's tendencies are. This guy's quick. You got to show scans to his left foot. This guy's going to do this. This guy's going to do that. So when I went over to there, there was none of that because everything was brand new, and I loved that feeling of having to relearn what it's like to be successful within a league because it had been a long time since I had to do that. So I absolutely loved it. The state itself was brilliant for three quarters of my time there, and yeah, now I'm back home though and uh, enjoying the 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 what is it? Once a week sunshine that comes down in Manchester. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. I think
0: it might be twice a week next week. Allegedly, the, allegedly, the predictions a bit yeah to be Allegedly, believed. yeah. Uh, well, I'm not gonna ask you about for the third time. I uh, Ibrahimovic story. So if anyone <laughs> listening doesn't know that, uh, just buy the book and yeah. Yes, yeah,
1: there see. we go.
0: There we go. Uh, how difficult? Uh, to, yeah, just uh, a few questions to wrap up. Just I don't think it's talked about that much. Is it difficult for you to make that decision to retire as a footballer, or was it um, easy for you?
1: It was very easy for me because as I was going over to the USA, I had a plan, like I had a plan of what I wanted to do. I had a deal which could run for two and a half years, which would take me up to thirty-four years of age. And you know, as you fly over the Atlantic, it tends to mean that you won't be welcomed back into the football community back if should you ever choose to come back to any sort of standard which you'll be happy with. So I was very much at ease with that. And I thought I'm gonna go out there, enjoy this experience, and then just enjoy, like enjoy being there. Like I was over. And it was as if I was on holiday for two and a half years. Like I was playing football oh. and enjoying it, but I was traveling around America. I was like a 40 minute flight away from Las Vegas, an hour and a half flight away from California. I was a three hour flight away from New York. You know, I was seeing all the different places with my wife, with my kids. We were traveling around doing all this stuff. And I thought, well, when this is over, I don't want to get back into that Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday thing back in England. If you were playing in the football league and like, and I'd, I was very lucky enough to have made enough money to be able to make those sorts of decisions. So when that decision was made, as I signed, I knew this was going to be the last one I was going to sign. And I was very, very happy with that. So I look forward to the end as much as I look forward to, you know, traveling the country and playing for RSL. So it was an easy, it was an easy decision for me. And I think a lot, some people who I know who played with in football, there's almost like a sense of jealousy because I got the chance to walk away on my own terms. And most people don't get to do that because as they're walking away, they're walking away because they're being told that nobody wants them or that they're not good enough or that they're too injured. So yeah, I'm very lucky with that.
0: You talk about your wife and kids and obviously your parents uh supporting you as a child. How important has family been to you? The decisions yeah. you made and your career as well.
1: Yeah, it's been without a doubt the most important thing for me. And my career itself is basically split in two is from when my mum was around and she went to every game they ever played and then when she wasn't and I had to sort of learn about football from a different sort of perspective. I couldn't make the same calls anymore to people who I cared about. And you just see it more so for what it is as opposed to sort of the journey that you share with each other. Like I remember my first goal against Spurs, blowing kisses up to her in the uh, in the West End and all that stuff. But it's they're, they're great for me. And that's the beauty of it. Wherever I've been, whatever the situation's been, I always arrive back to them, whether it's my sisters, my dad, my mom at the time, or now it's my wife and my kids. And it always brings in a sense of perspective. And for me, they're the most important things and if I didn't have them the likelihood is is would still probably be playing but instead I don't miss playing because I have them and you know that's who I am as a person what's next is uh, is the question you ask I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be seen as the uh the city defender out in the press now the guy who's going and just slaying all the piping hot man city hatred you've not done sky sports stuff like that that's my I'm, try, I'm actually trying to avoid that type of stuff because it's just like it's just too full on and it's just too like emotive and they want yeah. the short clips and all that stuff and with TV like there's tons of money in it but you don't really get the runway to be able to really express your opinion unless you are Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher, who have their own shows if you know what I mean so I like it's, it's, it's a bit too snappy for me but those guys they can go and do whatever they want to do but I like the feeling of being able to pick and choose which games I want to watch and then also, as I say, if I want to talk about them, I will. If I don't, then I won't. And that's the beauty of being freelance and having media as a hobby as opposed to a profession. Hmm. Okay.
0: Well, next Tuesday, as I say, do you want to – how excited are you to have a, a book out? Uh, forward by Michael Richards and Joe Hart as well.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, it's going to – do you know what? A
0: little conversation at the yeah, beginning.
1: Yeah, those two, those two get after it, to be fair. I um, <laughs> And that's me being nice. I think um, – <laughs> All the promo and stuff I'm doing before the book, like it's it's a lot and it's to just be let people know that it exists. But from the moment the book comes out and certain people read it, news like outlets will get a hold of it and there'll be totally different conversations. There'll be topics in there which some people agree with, disagree with. But as long as people to a certain extent under, understand me better or find certain bits insightful and they find it entertaining, then that's that's great. I'm not somebody who's constantly looking for reviews and critiques of people who I don't know. So people saying they hate it, for example, won't bother me because I won't know. But there's something out there, and if people want to buy into it and they're interested in me or interested in any of the clubs that I played for or what my perspective is on things or why I am who I am, I think it would be really, really good for them. And whether that number of people is like a 1,000, thousand, whatever – makes no difference because as soon as if it touches one person I think it's made a big difference so I'm looking forward to it being out and hopefully the people that are interested will enjoy it well I've kind of speed read it uh, because taking
0: notes and people just think I'm just saying this because you are I'm talking to you but absolutely brilliant read no, Thank um, you very much. going to start it again uh, this afternoon. Um, that's
1: the, that's the beauty <laughs> of books, isn't it? Doesn't yeah, yeah,
0: well being I mean, said, no, it's a notes I could just uh, sit down and read it from beginning to end at a leisurely pace. And, yes, yeah. sir. Yes, so, honestly, it's a superb read, and I'll uh, well to Hugh as well, who helped yeah, you. For but sure.
1: Big shout out to Hugh Ferris. Did, did great.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah, and good luck with it. So.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks uh, for having me on.
0: And uh, cost promotion, I think you're, you're doing the Blue Moon podcast live.
1: Yeah, um, 23rd of May. Yeah, 23rd. yeah that's right. I'm going to be, I'm actually, well, <laughs> to sum up who I am as a person, like I'm supposed to be doing work for that weekend because it's the final weekend of the season. Mm-hmm. But it's my 20-year anniversary of my wife, so I'm just going away somewhere so I can't do any work so yeah if you want to know how much of a hobby media is that, that's the definition of it yeah. oh you're away for the final game of the season yes yes, yes. I am but I'll be back Priorities. on the 23rd yes but I'll be back on the 23rd and uh, we'll have a good time on the show yeah. for sure yeah I should be there in the audience so, so uh,
0: Neda, thank you very much for coming on uh, no yeah, worries at all and well, once again great brilliant book brilliant reader good luck with it when it comes out next week thank you very much and thank you for listening everyone uh, yeah that was the 9320 special podcast Uh as always, take care of everyone, stay safe, and up the blues.